1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday.
0: Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Let's get into where we are because Texas is closing bars. They are coping with a record number of new cases really around the country is what we're seeing. So let's get into it with Dr. Ian Lasbader, uh, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone from New York City. I'm kind of jumbled to, because I'm trying to keep track, to be quite honest, Ian, of all the headlines that have come down just on this Friday alone. Um, Florida's governor says alcohol is suspended at bars. So how do you make sense of kind of where we are? are? Is the rest of the country kind of where New York was back in March?
2: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good uh, analysis. by Happy Friday, uh, Carol and Jason, <laughs> by the way, and thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and by the way, Jason, I've been in the office every day since uh, January, so oh, yeah. it, it is a shock, but some of us have been slogging through it.
1: I know, um, and I i have to say, Ian, before you answer, like, I have such huge – I have renewed admiration for everybody who has been going in, our team included, um, just given what it feels like, and I know it, it feels better than it did uh, two months ago. So I, I really it, – it's remarkable what uh, what you guys have done dealing with this. And I think that's one of the reasons, if I may editorialize for a second, why I think Carol and I are a little upset seeing what's going on uh, in the rest of the country, given everything we know from talking to you know friends and colleagues like you, you've, you've been doing and been through.
2: Right. So I think the task force like you is concerned about the dramatic, uh, really spike in cases uh, across the Sunbelt. And, and they all... Um, uh, Vice President Pence and uh, Dr. Birx and Fauci, I think, really had sort of a fairly uniform uh, expression of concern, which is that we're really having um, this paradigm shift from previously just testing people who seem to have symptoms or, or being ill to really asymptomatic testing now. And as that's happening, We're really seeing a spike in the number of cases, and I think the uh, press conference today was really focused on enlisting young people to to really have more social responsibility. As much as they want to go out, as everyone wants to go out and have fun, there really is a social responsibility to continue to flatten the curve, which I think – The northeastern states did, you know, reasonably well. It certainly is not zero by any means, but it certainly did flatten the cases. And part of that is to prevent this hospital surge where you overwhelm the ability of the hospitals to take care of people. You may not necessarily reduce the total number of cases. We don't have medications or a vaccine to prevent cases. But even if you slow the spread, you're able to kind of protect Uh, hospitals so that when, God forbid, when people need ventilators or need access, you know, that's available. And and I think that was their uh, emphasis today. And I think it it makes a lot of sense because we are seeing such a a spike in cases. And part of that are asymptomatic young people, as they say, under 40, under 35, who are carrying and transmitting uh, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, Uh, And feel perfectly fine. And that really is the conundrum. That's the challenge.
0: You know, I have to say, you know, we kind of had a little bit of a run in this weekend with a younger individual who was not wearing a mask, you know, and repeatedly kind of reminding um, as we were kind of out and about, um, you know, in a social situation. And it's just interesting. Um, and I think they make a good point. I do also want to bring up something our Vince Signorella, um, Dr. Lesbater brought up at the top of our show. You know, how do we, what are the numbers that we really need to focus? Is it cases? Is it hospitalizations? Like, what is it that either tells us we're getting back to where we were in New York in March, or it's a little bit different and maybe perhaps a little better or, you know, I don't know how you quantify it or qualify it.
2: Right. Well, as, as Dr. Fauci said, this is a protean disease, and he's never seen it, and we've never seen it. A disease where you can have, uh, fortunately, the majority of people, it seems, with really minimal or asymptomatic um, disease all the way to a life-threatening disease where people uh, die, and before that, they're a month or two on a, on a respirator. So it is very um, hard to process and, and somewhat hard to predict, which people will crash and burn and which people will have very mild cases. And because of this, we have to be uh, extra cautious in trying to prevent that, because although we know risk factors and, and they outline that type 1 diabetes, obesity, you know, hypertension, lung disease, age, we're still seeing young people who get sick, and certainly in in New York we've seen young people who unfortunately die. So we don't really have the full picture, and therefore everyone has to really be on much more guard, hopefully uh, go back to work uh, cautiously. It's a real um, balancing act between uh, damaging an economy and having some potential risk to your population. Uh, That's a, a, a tough needle to thread, and that's really what everyone is trying to grapple with, because we don't have recent history of this. 1918 yeah. was a long time ago, and they didn't have these issues.
1: All right. We're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Ian Lesbader, giving us some great context about where we are uh, in the virus. And I think uh, probably alongside with us, you know, watching this, uh with, with a little bit of caution and, and I dare say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, maybe a little frustration of, you know, what's going on uh, in the rest of the world because we have lived this, we know, and he's lived it far, far uh, more intimately than we have, Carol, and really seen people suffering from this disease.
0: And you really would hope that, you know, people have learned from what unfortunately we had to go through here in the New York metro area in particular, and you would hope that it would not be as bad or at least headed in that direction. So I guess time will tell, Jason, but it certainly is jarring uh, the tone that we are feeling really throughout the week, to be quite honest, and then of course to see that task force back.
1: You are listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you. We're back with Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine for NYU's Langone Medical Center, on the phone from New York City. So, Ian, I have to ask you, you know, we were a little bit doom and gloom, maybe rightly so, about the rest of the country. But we're looking at phase three, potentially. It's scheduled for July 6th in New York City. How are you feeling about that, especially as you see what's going on in the rest of the country?
2: Uh, You know, I'm optimistic. I I do think um, from what I see, most people are wearing masks and social distancing. We're seeing that uh, in our waiting room. Uh, hopefully businesses have had time to prepare and figure out ways to bring people back. It's a challenge. We really don't know what will happen. It looks as if, uh, at least in the Northeast, people will be able to return using good judgment. Uh, And that's not to disparage people, perhaps in the Sun Belt, who um, felt more comfortable because they really were unaware of the number of cases. We are probably only diagnosing, you know, one in five or one in ten uh, percent of cases, so the total number is almost. You, you have to think of this perhaps as ten times more. We have yeah. 2.5 million cases. Probably there are 25 million people who are infected. Fortunately, most asymptomatic. Right. Uh, it may be less than that, but certainly we can't be shocked if you know if those numbers uh, grow. And I think people have been feeling very confident. You know, there's more treatment. You hear less about deaths but even though many of these things like um uh convalescent plasma and de- uh dexamethasone remdesivir those seem to help a bit but by no means are they cures they 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 are reducing the death rate uh 20% 30% but uh by no means are we out of the woods but i do But think- Ian let
1: me ask you a question just on that exact point so if it's 10 times or 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 you know if it's 20 million versus 2 million like should that make us feel better?
2: Well, I, I think it should make us feel better as we see the number of cases going up. And that goes back to your question, what are we going to measure or what, what are we gonna, going to be concerned about? Yeah. I think we are going to see more cases going up, and that's why the number of hospitalizations and why the death rate or case fatality rate may be um, – somewhat more useful, right. but uh, I, I put that number out and that's uh, publicly available, um, you know, just so that we're not shocked at seeing more and more cases, but it is a reminder that we do need to again have that community involvement, as Dr. Fauci said, with young people being very aware because they're the main uh, uh, kind of petri dish at this point. They're, they're a big reservoir of asymptomatic disease when we first started out, we were only testing sick people. Now we really have the ability, fortunately, to test asymptomatic people. So I think we should go through with phase three. We do have more testing available. We're seeing in New York at least a high uh, seroprevalence rate, probably 20 maybe even 30%. So that's Meaning antibodies, dangerous. right? Antibodies, exactly. And we think those are preventive antibodies, how long they will last, how long they'll uh, – uh, prevent recurrence, we don't really know. Again, will the virus mutate in a second wave or in the fall? But certainly, I think based on what we are seeing now, cautiously going back makes sense here. But this is very regional. Obviously, yeah. there are areas where it's still rising dramatically.
0: So, so i'm just thinking about our audience listening to this and how the week's been and the task force came out so ian you know is it just a case if we start to see hospitalizations go up a lot is that when we all have to say well wait a minute we've really got to slow this down is that the number that we've got to be kind of
2: glued to i think so and uh, you know there's always that delay right so as you're diagnosing cases hospitalizations and sadly deaths will be delayed two three four weeks down the line. So we haven't really seen that surge in hospitalizations because you're just seeing uh, cases diagnosed now. So there will be a delay and, and that in some ways gives the localities time to prepare. But many community hospitals really don't have the resources if there's really a big surge. And that was the whole rationale to try and, you know, flatten the curve. Uh, I don't want to say it's too late, but there may be areas where uh, that we're not as careful and we're seeing more cases, and I think we have to expect more hospitalizations and sadly more deaths in the next few weeks because that's just the kind of how the numbers go uh in this scenario
1: yeah it's a uh it's a tricky time to say the least and a worrisome time I think uh as well. All right, Dr. Ian Lesbader, it's always good to end up the week with you because I feel like I go into the weekend smarter, knowing what I should be thinking about. And, you know, candidly, when people from a social distance uh, ask me what I think is going on, I just quote Dr. Ian Lesbader.
0: Uh, no, I do. I really feel like we take everything that's been going on in the week. And this day was full of so much. And yeah. we just makes sense just still out of all of it. So, um, yeah, I really always appreciate uh, he being one of our go to voices when it comes to the virus. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. As we mentioned earlier, we did have an IPO today, America's second largest supermarket operator. Albertson is once again a public company, and the stock right now trading at $15.70 a share. That's below its $16 a share IPO price. Let's get into it with the company's president and CEO, Vivek Sankaran. He joins us on the phone from Boise, Idaho. Vivek, so nice to have you here with us. Congratulations, Um It wasn't an easy, necessarily, IPO to do, considering kind of the market backdrop uh, and just kind of the world at large.
3: Oh, Carol, you're right. It's um, it's so hard to predict what happens to the market uh, ever, but we as a company, we've been so ready preparing the company, strengthening it uh, for this day. We feel so confident about what we're going to do in the future.
1: So Vivek, talk to us about uh, the world we're living in right now, even outside of the financial markets. When it comes to your stores, you've obviously had to do some some retrofitting, some remodeling like everyone else has had to do. Where are you in that process?
3: Uh, so we did. We started out very early in February and March perplexity uh, plexiglass, decals, uh, new cleaning procedures, uh, one-way aisles, et cetera. One of the things we've learned is you can never stop innovating on that front, right? Uh, You you can never get complacent, never stop innovating, and we continue to look for new ideas. Sometimes it's a new technology that might count the number of people coming into a store and exiting a store. Sometimes it's about new thermoscan reading temperatures as people come into our factories. So we're always innovating.
0: So what do you do with something like a salad and soup bar? Do you just get rid of it?
3: Yeah, for now we have, right? It's uh, what we do instead. Or you, you were able to go to a salad bar and make your own salad or pick the, pick the half a dozen chicken wings you wanted. Now we package it and, allow, and provide it. We still provide it for our customers, and customers still want it. Uh, they can't customize it like they did before. Right. Uh, it'll come over time, but I don't think it's the right time yet.
0: So Vivek, I think if I've got my numbers right, only about a quarter of your stores feature online order pickup, well below many of your peers. So how do you play catch up with your rivals, especially when it comes to e-commerce? Because folks have had to do it because of the shutdown. And a lot of people are saying, even those who hadn't done it before, I like it and are probably going to continue in the future. So how do you play catch up?
3: You're so right. We were building it. uh, This last few months have been an incredible catalyst for us to go even faster, and and the, and the fact that we don't have it in so much of our footprint is so much upside for us. I can tell you this, though. Every time we open it in a new store, we get a whole set of new customers starting to shop with us. And the customers who are already shopping with us shop even more. And I think it's because we, we provide such a fabulous fresh assortment and a more complete assortment than many. Um, and so... Uh, so I just think customers say I've got a great store, and I now have the convenience of omni-channel with it.
0: So, in terms of catching up, is it just because you guys are going to focus on it and just ramp up your efforts to catch up, or what?
3: Uh, yes, that is, uh, and we're we're also catching up in different ways. You know, we are we are we've got new technologies that we're putting in place that that can enable faster picking in stores. So we're doing it in different ways, and we are adapting to some new stuff that's coming from the, coming onto the market.
1: And so, when you think about the competitive landscape, of like even beyond uh, e commerce, from a, a pricing perspective, what do you see in terms of pressure from some of the you know, lower price or the, the so called hard discount formats? I'm thinking yeah. about like Aldi and others, and, and even with the dollar stores who are pushing deeper into grocery. How do you combat that side of the equation?
3: Yeah, you know uh, the way I see it is competition is a wonderful thing. It keeps us all sharper. We learn from things. Uh, We learn from them all the time, Uh, and we play the game a little differently, right? You can go to some of those stores, and you won't get the full assortment you want. You come to our store, you get the full assortment you want. And the great thing about our country is there's you can uh, different customers want different choices, Um, and. And so the key is to find a way to compete that's different and right for our customer. And we believe we do that very
0: well. So Vivek, I do wonder, so you, are, you guys are now, as we said at the top, a publicly held company uh, trading on the New York Stock Exchange. This is after 14 years of private ownership by Cerberus Capital. Um I do wonder though are you disappointed with the IPO $16 was below an expected range there was talk of you know you guys raising more than a billion dollars in this IPO are you disappointed
3: Carol you know we are actually elated that we could conduct an IPO in one of the most difficult environments we have all seen in our lifetimes um in so many different ways and that so many investors had confidence to put their money with us, and and we are always long-term oriented. You said it. Uh, our owner, our uh, investors have been with us since 2006. Okay, and uh, so it's a long-term orientation, and that's what we have every day
1: here. And so uh, Vivek. When you think about your employees, too, and, and the workforce, I mean, what a change it has been from an incredibly tight labor market that we had earlier in the year to record unemployment now. Tell us about your workforce and how you see that changing, growing, shrinking in the short and midterm.
3: Yeah, we've had to uh, add so many people uh, to our stores, our distribution centers, our omnichannel business uh, so in the last, uh, the first few months, we recruited more than 50,000 people. Uh, we we had a base of 270,000 people. You know our workforce. Um, there, there's there's so many who've been with us for so long and um, who are so service oriented and service centric uh, that you know we we celebrate our workforce and we spend a lot of time keeping them safe, making sure they're paid right, uh, especially through this uh, crisis. And, and we think this will continue for a while, that we'd be able to, we'll need this level of workforce. Um, and I don't know how things change, how, so hard to predict it, uh, but, uh, but, you know, we are on a good trend on that front.
0: So I've got to just quickly ask you, what's going to be the relationship with Cerberus going forward? They still have a sizable stake in you guys, and you still have a fair amount of debt. I think it was $8.7 billion at the end of uh, the last fiscal year. How do you get rid of it? And just got about a minute left.
3: Yes, it's, it's a lot lower now. It's only 2.5 times our EBITDA, a little shy of $7 billion. And, and um, we recognize that Cerberus and four other investors who've been with us, they'll continue to stay with us. They've been fabulous. They've invested in this company to make it stronger. And we're delighted that they continue to stay with us.
1: All right. We're going to leave it there. Vivek Sankaran, thank you so much. President and CEO of Albertsons. Newly public, uh, certainly a company to watch. Can I say one personal thing, Carol, about mm-hmm. Albertsons? Please. They own the Randall's uh, grocery store chain. My first job. In Are Houston, you Texas, the Randall's Ooh. Randall's flagship. Uh, if Debbie Kelly is listening, she Did you would like remember. Check
0: out? Were you a stock boy? Were I was you a at checkout.
1: You know what? I wanted to be a because um, this was a it was a fancy grocery store in uh, in the neighborhood where we lived in Houston, and so you took people's groceries out to the car. And even though it was Houston and it was hot as all get out, yeah. that was the job you wanted because Who's you got tipped. I couldn't get one of those jobs. Those were all tickets so I was a cashier instead. Um, pinstriped apron. It's like would
0: you like bow tie. your egg? would you like your eggs on the bottom?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, you had to worry about like your speed and all that.
0: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: We are obviously tracking so closely what's happening with the virus, especially outside of New York City in the rest of the country. The headlines are troubling, to say the least, and the numbers even more so. Michelle Cortez, health science and medical technology reporter, is with us from Bloomberg. She joins us on the phone from Minneapolis. And Michelle, before we talk to you, I want to hear a little bit from Dr. Anthony Fauci. He spoke earlier today specifically about his advice to young people.
2: Anyone who gets infected or is at risk of getting infected to a greater or lesser degree is part of the dynamic process of the outbreak. And I know because I can understand when I was at a stage in my life when I said, well, I'm invulnerable, so I'm going to take a risk. I think what we're missing in this is something that we've never faced before, is that a risk for you is not just isolated to you. Because if you get infected, you are part, innocently or inadvertently, of propagating the dynamic process of a pandemic. All right,
0: of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci, member of the White House uh, Coronavirus Task Force, they uh, are back in action, and we heard from them earlier today. So let's bring in Michelle Cortez, as Jason said, Bloomberg News, health science and medical reporter on the phone from Minneapolis. So Michelle, it's really been a different week again, I feel like. And the tone certainly today from the task force, a bit confusing at times. Um, how do you add it all up right now, where we are in terms of a nation when it comes to the virus?
4: Things are unusual and, and hard to follow. So the task force was trying to portray it as a positive situation because, in fact, we are seeing a decline in death rates. Fewer people right now are dying from coronavirus than were dying from it back in April when we were seeing you know thousands of people die every day. There were a couple of days this week where we had fewer than 300 people die. That being said, the number of new cases is skyrocketing. We hit a new piece just today with more than 40,000 people infected, and we know that deaths do follow. Um, so that's a trailing indicator. So we could have deaths increasing. Also, since we're doing a better job of capturing these cases and finding them early, it might take longer for people to get really sick or die. Or perhaps we're just finding more people who ultimately won't die. So it depends on the framing, how you're looking at the outbreak.
1: All right. So the framing, I guess, (laughs) Michelle, sitting here in New York, is important. And and yet there is a sense of sort of like gloom and dread that I feel, at least, uh, looking at these numbers. Either validate that feeling or, or tell me that I shouldn't be feeling it
4: well i think that again you're hitting it exactly on the head because you have to remember that you're sitting there in new york and you probably know someone who was infected with coronavirus many you people. might have known somebody who got very sick right so in many many parts of the country and in many parts of the world People don't know anyone. I don't know anyone who's had coronavirus. I don't know anyone who knows anyone who's had coronavirus. Mm. I'm in Minneapolis. And so I think that that's the difference. And another thing that they talked about at the briefing today is that this is really very regional and not regional by state, but regional by county. There are some areas that are incredibly hard hit, and those people are panicked by these numbers. That's like people in New York City. You have lived this, and you know how bad it can be. But other people don't understand it. And they think that it's maybe not as serious a problem and certainly not a problem for them. But across the South, now more people are sadly joining your club and realizing how dangerous this might be.
0: So how do we, I don't know, you know, here we are, we've got, you know, we continue to reopen, certainly here on the East Coast, you know, and other states are reopening. And yet you have those number of cases going up, Michelle. So I don't know, you've been smack in the middle of this. How do you, what, what are you? What's your anticipation of kind of what comes next?
4: Well, the bottom line is, is that this, is, this virus is not stopping. We, most viruses are seasonal. We should have seen a decline in the mm-hmm. summer. We're not seeing a decline. We know that they're seasonal. They increase in the fall. So likely we will see an increase from these higher numbers. We know from serology tests that only a tiny fraction of Americans infected. So this virus is going to be with us and be with us and be with us until we get a successful vaccine. I, when it comes to vaccines am a show don't tell person, I want to see results. We don't even have any phase run results from any of these trials yet. So I don't think we can count on that. We can hope for it, but we can't count on it.
0: What about, though, Jason and I have talked a lot this week about Moderna and the CEO coming out and saying, I think they're going into phase three, right, Uh, or soon. I mean, does that give you any optimism in terms of a vaccine?
4: Well, that gives me optimism that if there is a successful vaccine, if there's a successful trial, which is a huge if, we will have product at the end of it. But you have to remember that most clinical trials, at least initially, are not successful. Again, we don't have phase one data. We don't have any firm evidence of whether this approach is gonna work or not. And there are no vaccines that work the way this vaccine works. So all the science suggests that it's gonna be great. All the early laboratory work, first and man numbers, they all look good, but we don't have any scientific proof yet. So we're we're betting a lot on the fact that, you know, all the numbers add up and now let's go try it in a person and see if it stands. And um, I, I'm just I'm just, you know, show, don't tell. I, I, I need to actually see the evidence. But what does work is masks and social distancing and right. everyone needs to be doing that. And it's just when, again, if you've never been personally affected, it's not in your community. You think you're crazy for wearing a mask like an imposter syndrome. Yeah. But yeah. people need to embrace it.
1: All right, Michelle Cortez, you're preaching to the choir here. Our award-winning journalist based in Minneapolis, covering this coronavirus, she's a must-read. Uh, I, I sound like Tom Keene. It's like read Michelle Cortez, everything she writes, but I, it's totally true. But she explains so unbelievable much unbelievable about this.
0: But she explains so much, right? Because it, yeah, it, you know, those people who are in states are like I don't know anybody, I'm okay. Versus us who we know lots of people um, who've also lost their lives. So yeah. it's it's not something to play around with. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Ernesto Ramos. He leads the portfolio management and research teams for all equity strategies over at BMO Global Asset Management in the U.S. He's got, uh, or the firm, I should say, has $277 billion in assets under management. Ernesto joining us once again on the phone in Chicago. Ernesto, good to have you here with us. Um, curious about the last week. We've certainly felt like a tone when it A tone has changed in terms of concerns, once again, about the virus. We've had some trade concerns throughout the week, and we've seen it play out out, uh, certainly in the equity markets. How do you see it?
5: Well, there's no shortage for sure of things to worry about in the equity market. And uh, the important thing is not so much what the uh, absolute level of worrying is. It's whether we're actually seeing things improve and granted, things were improving at a faster pace. And this week they they took a hit because of, of coronavirus, because of trade. Uh, but we still think that things will be are on the on the upswing here in terms of the economic growth and, and the reopening. Even though it may be a little bit less, uh, a little bit more bumpy, a little bit less smooth. Um, so, in our particular uh, in our portfolios, we are choosing to stay focused on high-quality, strong balance sheet companies, companies that can can withstand a little bit more of the lower growth and perhaps bumpy road that we're that's in front of us, but still deliver exposure to equity markets. Because at the end of the day, equity markets right now have uh, have seen an incredibly strong policy response from from the Fed and and uh, fiscal f- from the Treasury on the fiscal side. So that is a very important component of our bullish call on equities right. well for the U.S. So bullish.
0: So, so, bu- a- so bullish, bottom line.
5: Bullish, uh, bottom line bullish, yes. But uh, you want to see a little bit more on the defensive side, such as the, the stocks in our BMO Low Volatility Equity Fund, which today is is down, but is down almost 80 basis points or 0.8% less than the market as a whole, simply because of the defensive nature of the stocks and the portfolio itself uh, protecting our clients on the downside.
1: Well, Ernesto, you know, Carol and I love talking about names. And one of the names we definitely wanted to talk to you about was Kroger. We spoke earlier with the CEO of Albertson's newly Public. Uh, as you know, talk to us about Kroger and the supermarket business. I mean, talk about... Uh, a place that's been important, but also disrupted, and, and all sorts of things. Uh, talk about that name.
5: Well, I mean, two of the three picks that I, I sent over to you guys was Kroger, and the other one's Sprouts Farmers Market. Yeah, they're both. i in the supermarket business. They're both benefiting from stay-at-home, uh, and, and uh, they've managed to adapt their businesses to to pickups and delivery. So, so th- these are companies that are going to do well in this environment, and wouldn't do necessarily as well in terms of the stock price in a much more risk-on type environment. I'm, I'm risk on on risk-on days, they lag, but on a day like today, I, I, I'm pretty sure Sprouts is still up. I'm not sure about Kroger's, whether it's that that was up a little bit, but not as much as as Sprouts. Uh, but this is the exact nature of the stocks that like, that are defensive like this. Uh, they, they outperform on on down days and provide a a counterweight to the. To the rest of the portfolio which might not be doing as well so so that's that's why we like them. we like them
1: for the particular stressful times that we're in right we have stable and, and and defensive resilient businesses and so and just going down a level on that particular uh sector or that particular uh business why sprouts and kroger what do you get sort of having both of them
5: Well, we own a ton of consumer staples so that's
1: not those are not our only two yeah so
5: so the way we build our portfolios is we we look at the potential return of every stock in the universe it's about thousand stocks and then we and these stocks rank in the top 25 percent of our of our of our attractiveness and that is a composite that we create out of how strong are the fundamentals of the company and how much are you paying for those fundamentals and finally What's the sentiment around the stock, and and those those three large categories of of, of uh, metrics are aggregated to one final score. These three companies have relatively strong fundamentals, and they trade cheaply enough that they make it into the the portfolio. And then we also build a portfolio with a very strong focus on minimizing the risk on the downside, and and that's. That's also a very critical part of it. So these companies have enough attractiveness to make it into a portfolio. But most importantly, and this is the reason they're in the portfolio, uh, they're low-risk stocks, stocks that will protect you on days when the market is down
3: like uh like today for example
0: well and i do want to point out sprouts is up about 2.2 percent today it's up 28 percent so far this year kroger is down about one third of one percent so just a little bit lower but it's up 13 yes. percent so far this year so albertson's which went public today second largest operator of supermarkets in the u.s do you are you interested are you going to look to maybe buy
5: we we don't own it and uh we, we will buy according to what I just told you, and off the top of my head, I can't tell you what the, the ranking of any stock in the 1,000 universe is right now, but when the time comes to take a look at, at uh, uh, rebalancing, as we call it, our portfolio, we'll definitely pay attention to see if, if Alverson's coming into yeah. to the mix.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, I uh, look forward to catching up with you in the future. Ernesto Ramos is Portfolio Manager for BMO Global Asset Management joining us on the phone from Chicago. Have a nice weekend. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.